Dear friends, welcome to Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. My name is Evan Papp, and I will be sharing stories, interviews, and conversations that universalize the human condition, and I will outline public policies that can solve the most intractable challenges of today. The goal of motivating and organizing collective action to achieve a more progressive future. As part of our labor series that stretches from Pittsburgh to Chicago, through Cleveland, Detroit, and Ben Harbor, I met with Allison Eichhorn, who is a Chicago public school teacher at Lindblom High School. Allison is on the bargaining team for the Chicago Teachers Union. She discusses the struggles teachers face to educate our youth. Although filmed in February, I find this interview especially poignant as we face a 2020 school year with a pandemic and very little input from the teachers who are on the front lines teaching our youth. I hope you enjoy, and remember to support public school teachers everywhere. I work at Limbaugh Math and Science Academy, which is a Chicago public school. I teach 11th and 12th grade history. This is my 12th year teaching. The only way we see real change in this society is through um, education and through opportunity through education. That was what motivated me to go into education. I give the lens of labor history and people's activism through the classes that I teach. They're mostly juniors and seniors. They, they know my activism. They understand that I'm an activist and they know my role in bargaining and they know my role throughout the union activism. A couple of years ago, I took a rest at a Bank of America protest and so they found my mugshot online. <laughs> They're very aware of my social justice activism. And so I think they respond to me in that sense, that they get excited about having someone that is so passionate about what they do and, and the world that, that I envision for, for my students. They listen when we're talking about labor issues and when we're talking about so, um, social justice issues and, and racial and economic and education justice issues. They respond to that, they hear that, they listen to that, and a lot of them have become activists. During the strike in October, there was a student sit-in at City Hall that was led by my students. But they've taken what they've learned and what they've seen and and the modeling that I've done and said, hey, we can also do this. So that's been pretty cool. We have about 28,000 members in the Chicago Teachers Union. Going into 2010, the Caucus of Rank and File Educators was elected. I was a member of CORE. So in that space, I started to really get involved in union politics. It was actually my second year teaching. (laughs) I was not tenured. What vision do we see for education? And and that's always been racial, social, and economic justice because we think that education is affected by everything. 16 children were shot over the weekend. That's going to come back into our classroom. So all of these things need to be fixed if we really plan to educate children the way they should be educated. The importance of a union for anybody is unmatched. My activism wouldn't even be allowed if I wasn't in the union. You get fired for those things. And so having the safety and protection on a personal level to be able to, to voice my opinion and feel comfortable voicing my opinion is one thing, but also everyone deserves due process. Having the union as a, a support system for when something might go wrong in the classroom. To have a, a 256-page document that says these are my working conditions and this is what you have to abide by is a really significant thing. American society has programmed us to just work and work and work and work, and we never stop and think about, are we overworked? (laughs) Even with our contract, we're overworked, but it gives us some protections. Before CORE took charge, we had a a five-year contract, 4% raises every year, and Mayor Daley never wanted to struggle with the teachers, so we had 25 years of labor peace with the Chicago Public Schools because they didn't want teachers to go out on strike. We had a strike almost every year in the 80s. When Mayor Daley stepped down as mayor and Rahm Emanuel ran, the first thing he did was take away that last year raises in that contract. There was a clause in the contract that said that under economic circumstances, we don't necessarily have to get the raises. 
So she took him away from us. It was 4%. And that, I think, was the first trigger. Like, who are we dealing with now? He's a brand new mayor. He decided to do this. So we got 0% raises that year. And then the contract ran up. There was a lot of neoliberal education reform happening in the country. I think it was a test of whether or not Chicago Public Schools teachers would actually go on strike. There hadn't been a strike for 25 years. What would that look like? So in 2012, we ran a successful seven-day strike. They were saying, can you strike? We proved we could. And then in 2016, we saw a district potentially was on the verge of collapse, verge of bankruptcy. We had no money. Um, there was so much mismanagement, so much high-interest bonds that they were taking out more just to cover their bills. I was also on the bargaining team during that time, and that was a, a different level of stress, trying to negotiate a contract with someone that you think is legitimately broke. So we, we decided not to strike in 2016. And then in 2019, it was an interesting space because for months and months and months, they're like, well, we don't know who the mayor's going to be, so we're not going to bargain with you. All the way up until last May, they're like, well, we have no idea who the mayor's going to be, so we don't even know if we'll have a job, so we're just not going to bargain with you. So we were really behind in bargaining. Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lightfoot, during the strike, said on record, it probably would have helped if I would have started negotiating with them earlier. The strike did not need to last 11 days. They refused to give us any counter proposals. We gave them a like 50 page document with 75 different proposals in it. They didn't give us anything back until we went on strike. It was a bizarre time because they didn't feel a sense of urgency and we're like, every day we're out is urgent. It wasn't about money, it wasn't about power, as much as it was like we need to actually start putting into action the vision for what we want for our, our communities to look like. That really was about social workers, nurses in every school. Why do we have to fight for that? I grew up just 20 miles south of here and I had a full-time nurse. I had all the extracurriculars I could imagine. I had good public school. And so why is it that 20 miles south I can get that education and a student in Chicago can't get that education? The strike for these teachers this year was very personal. We need extra support in these schools to help kids learn and grow. We had to get written in our contract that pre-K deserves a nap, that they can actually nap. We had principals taking cots out of the pre-kindergartner room and throwing the cots in the trash because they didn't want four-year-olds and three-year-olds napping. It's insane. So a 10 to 1 ratio needs to be in pre-K. We were arguing for class sizes of anywhere from 18 to 24 in the lower grades, and then higher grades, we said high school 25. We didn't win that, but we did win class size in our contract for the first time. In Illinois, we did not have the right to negotiate over class size. Even though it was in our contract, we couldn't file a grievance. There was no way to negotiate over it. It was not a mandatory subject of bargaining. So now it's in our contract, and we have the right to negotiate it and file grievances over it. So it's a start for us. It's not where we wanted to get to. We wanted better, but it's a huge start. There's just no reason to not have a nurse in every school every day. Kids don't only get sick on Tuesdays. For a while, the board was using the argument, we can't actually find these positions. There's a staffing shortage for nurses. And we said, well, if you paid them, <laughs> if you paid them a wage that they would want to come to CPS for, there's plenty. So getting that language that there would be a nurse in every school by the end of our contract is huge. These students see tra more trauma than any of us have seen in our lives. If you go to my classroom and how many of them know a family member or a friend that has died to gun violence, nearly every hand will go up. So to say that these kids don't live with trauma is just false. And so we need social workers. We need experts in those buildings that can help students deal with this trauma. Rahm Emanuel closed all the mental health clinics in the city, and, and they have not been reopened. So how do we deal with that? What kind of supports are we willing to give these students to allow them the opportunity to be successful? They would never expect it in any suburb anywhere else, right? They just can, can expect it because it's Chicago, and it's enough's enough. People want a life with dignity. Doesn't every job deserve a life with dignity? Whether you're a red state or a blue state, anyone can agree to that. When we're talking about West Virginia, which kind of led the first wave of the red state, right to work state strikes, 
beautiful to see teachers that maybe are taking a step out and taking a little bit more risk than people like the Chicago Teachers Union did to say, hey, like, I can't live like this anymore. I would like to think we inspired them. <laughs> we definitely did some groundwork and legwork to say like, hey, this is possible, but th they took a risk. They went against AFT, who told them to stop the strike. Their national union, there was fighting there. And, and to say like, hey, these teachers feel like they have voices that need to be heard is no accident. I think that's just because conditions have gotten so bad. We see a nationwide teacher shortage. We see people not wanting to join the profession. You could, again, go into my class and ask any kid who is a high-performing, they had to test in to get to this school, very smart children, to say, hey, who wants to be a teacher? Not one hand will go up. I have 155 students. I do not have one child that wants to teach because they've lived through three teacher strikes. At what point do they start to internalize this and say, hey, actually, this is not a respected profession. Though I love my teachers for what they do for me, it's not something I could put myself through. So until we start changing that attitude and actually respecting teachers, we're going to continue to see teacher strikes because teachers are seeing that it's possible and that another world is possible and they're going to keep fighting for it. In 2016, one of the big motivators to settle that contract without a strike was that we got language on a charter school moratorium in our contract. And people were like, what? <laughs> like, Howard, that's not even your bargaining subject. And we're like, it is today. They were desperate to settle that without a strike. And so it wasn't about money because we knew they were broke. So a lot of it was like, what can we get from you to make our quality of life better? That was a, a charter school moratorium. There was a really good WBEZ article that came out about five years ago about the number of high schools. In a district that had about 99,000 high school students, we went from 100 high schools to like 163 high schools or something like that. And that's because of the charter school movement. So when we talk about under-enrollment, right, and when we talk about how um, schools don't have enough students, that is intentional. We've closed schools and then opened up a charter school across the street to take from these neighborhood schools. And then these neighborhood schools, their funding is based on student population, student-based budgeting, which is a crime in itself. And then we can make an argument for closing schools. And this was all part of Renaissance 2010, which was a brainchild of Mayor Daley. And he said, there's three categories of schools. There's charter schools, contract schools, and then public schools. Under these three categories, we're going to get every child to have a choice, right, where they want to go to school. So this has been 20 years in the making because it started in 2000. For the first time back in 2015-2016 is when we actually didn't see any increase in the number of charter schools. After that massive school closing in 2013, where Rahm Emanuel closed 50 schools in black and brown neighborhoods, we're doing a better job exposing that this is just all neoliberal ed reform that we're trying to put a stop to. Charter schools are just cheaper to run. Only 75% of teachers have to be actually certified teachers. There's a good chance you're not going to have a teacher in front of you that's a certified teacher. But also, they don't pay any kind of a living wage. Like many of the charter schools in Chicago were paying 32000 to start when teacher, teacher salary in CPS is 52000 to start. Another prong that we used to fight this was we unionized a lot of the charter schools. Over 25% of the Chicago charter schools are unionized and we federated them into our union. So we also now negotiate their contracts. No charter operator is going to say, like, let's organize a charter school because if they're union, they don't want to open up a new one because then they'll unionize that one. And if they're new to it, they're seeing that, like, all these schools are unionizing. It's just a disincentive. But alongside that, we, we often see charters as a way to, like, funnel money to friends. So whether it's building the new school, the contracts for the new school, or whatever is inside the school, the bosses, often they make more than what the CEO of Chicago Public Schools makes to manage 500 schools. And they may, might have four or five schools, maybe even one school. It pulls money out of the classroom and goes to people's pockets much quicker than, than CPS does. And it takes 
control out of CPS. So charter operators make decisions. Sometimes they're racist decisions about dress codes or color of your hair or things like that. I don't think are, are good for our students in the city. School vouchers. So it's supposed to go to low-income students that want school choice, but we often see that that doesn't happen. And so we've been working to try to get that gone, but it hasn't been successful yet. We're living in a weird time, right, where we have the Janus decision just last year that said that not all teachers have to be members of the union. And before, you didn't have to be a member of the union, but you had to pay dues. Now we're living in a space that we have to be active in signing people up for the union. We were worried about the impact of Janus on our union. So Janus is the Supreme Court decision, unfortunately, that came out of Illinois, right? Mark Janus, that said that he doesn't want to be a part of the union because it spends his dues money on politics. He's been fighting for years, and we thought we had like a break when Scalia died, and we're like, okay, maybe we can get a different justice in there that would rule because it was a tie, four to four. And then Trump got elected, and so we knew that we were going to lose that fight because we have an organizing model in our union. We're like, okay, we have to actually organize to keep people in our union, right? Um, we, we need people to believe that the work that the union does is important and that they want to pay their dues money. So we immediately started organizing for it and also planning for some fallout. We, we saw places like Michigan and right-to-work states lose upwards of 15% of their membership. We ended up losing less than 1% of our membership. We literally lost like 20 people <laughs> out of 26,000. We have done over the last decade such an amazing job of educating members on what our union does. And we can have disagreements about how effective our union is and some people get mad. But at the end of the day, we are visible. They understand the work we're doing. They understand what we're fighting for. And any CTU member can explain that. And I think that's what other unions across the country need to model after. I'm a history teacher, and throughout history, we have these like idea of union bosses, and it's like such a disconnect. The Irishmen, right? Like such a disconnect from what their members want. And so, seeing that this model is working, and that members speak about the issues of the union and the issues of the classroom, and we've educated the the city on TIF money. People were never talking about why isn't this TIF money going to public schools? Why is it going to Wintrust Arena? Those issues have helped create our safety net for the unions doing good work, and we need to continue funding that work. My dad was a union carpenter, right? We heard about unions all the time, and I knew my dad got a pretty decent wage, but I didn't understand until really getting involved in the Chicago Teachers Union what people power is, like what democracy actually looks like in the workplace. The advice I'm always giving to people is like, no matter how good of a job your job is, no matter how white collar or blue collar, everyone deserves to have democracy in the workplace. Everyone deserves to have due process, to have uh, the benefit of the doubt when, when something happens, and to have a living wage. Unions provide that security. Unions are not perfect, but they are the closest thing we have to perfect in protecting workers' rights. One of the things I always teach my students, we always get into this argument. In fact, in economics, I teach socialism versus capitalism versus mixed economy. And so we talk about what does it look like for regular people to have ownership over the production of their goods. The boss didn't get rich because the boss is the boss, right? The boss got rich because workers produced goods, right? And when we break it down to something as simple as that, teachers produce, they produce lessons for their students. Workers in a factory line produce the object or item being sold. Any example you can give, the worker is the one that is creating the wealth. If we can have the discussion about where that wealth comes from, then we have the discussion of why don't, why don't they get a share of that wealth? And why don't they get a share of that rights, that democracy, that ownership of that product? We've been fighting these fights for hundreds of years now. We have such a rich union history in Chicago. My students have learned about Haymarket, and they've learned about Pullman, and they're like, Wait, they were fighting for an eight-hour workday in 1886?
And I'm like, yeah. We're still fighting for that eight-hour workday. We're still asked all the time to do things off the clock. When you talk about workers have a life with dignity, have leisure time, and have democracy in the workplace, unions are the only one that's going to give you that. The boss is never going to give you anything to help you. So you've got to take it. <laughs> you've got to take it. Everyone needs a union. <laughs> If you like what you heard, hit the like button, leave a review, and subscribe to hear future episodes. You can find us at empathymedialab.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Patreon at Empathy Media Lab. Empathy Media Lab is a production house, artist studio, and event space. If you'd like to collaborate on a story or are seeking media services, you can email me at evan at empathymedialab.com. We are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Check out our show and all the shows elevating the voice of working people throughout the world at laborradionet.org. Union Solidarity Forever.